Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. This morning, we're continuing our series through 1 Corinthians, looking at how we live as believers in a culture that doesn't match up with heaven's culture. And I'd like to invite us just to pray together as we open God's word. Lord, thank you for a living word that keeps on speaking to us. Lord, thank you that your voice carries across the distance of centuries, across the distance of language, across the distance of cultures. Lord, thank you that your Holy Spirit speaks to us today. So Lord, as we go through your word, we ask that your word would take root in us and grow up to bear fruit that transforms us to be more and more like Jesus. In your precious name, amen. Well, turn with me in your Bible if you are equipped to do that to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a letter that Paul wrote to a group of believers in the city of Corinth, in, the, in sort of on the Grecian peninsula. And, and Paul wrote this, you know, we don't know exactly when, uh, but, you know, a few decades after Jesus died and rose again. Paul himself had not been a follower of Jesus when Jesus was alive, but became a Christian sometime after Jesus' resurrection. And he's writing this letter to people who didn't grow up going to church like many of us have done. He wrote this letter to many people who had become Christians out of a very pagan background. They were worshiping those Greek and Roman gods and goddesses that you learned about in school. And so Paul's writing to say God has a way to live. Heaven has a culture. And he's speaking to the variety of challenges that they have in their personal relationships and as well in living with Jesus at the center of their lives in the midst of a culture that orbits around other things. And let's start reading in in verse one. Paul says this. He says, now about food sacrificed to idols. And we understand him to be replying to a question that folks from the church had asked him. Going through 1 Corinthians, there seemed to be several questions that the church in Corinth had sent Paul questions about. And one was dealing with a specific controversy about, is it okay to eat food that's been sacrificed in one of the pagan temples or not? He says, so now about food sacrificed to idols. Now, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. And then Paul seems to realize, wait, it doesn't really sound like I'm answering the question here at all. So he he restarts. He says, now then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, getting back to your question, He says, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. How many? But one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether, um, sorry, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many so-called gods and many so-called lords, yet for us there is but one God the Father, from whom all things came and for whom 
we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So as Paul begins to speak into the controversy that they're facing in the church, what do we do about what everybody else is doing in the culture? He wants to make some things very clear. And when he answers the question, is it okay to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols, has been sacrificed in a temple? He lifts the conversation out of the level of what are other people doing? And he talks about the spiritual realities that really are there. He says, look, there's all these other so-called gods, but really, how many are there? There's just one. Now, that's a perspective. He's trying to bring heaven's perspective into the controversy. And the controversy, it's not an academic theological point for them. This is a rubber meets the road issue for most of the people living in Corinth because with as many temples as there were and as many people as a regular part of their worship needing to bring something to the temple, well, one of the most common things you could bring to the temple as your offering was food because you didn't have to be rich to bring it. If you were going to bring gold or silver, well, you're going to be in a minority of people in town who have the money to bring a cash offering like that. Most people, they bring, well, some of the food that they're going to eat, and they presented it before the idol, before the so-called gods at the temple. And the usual practice was that the priests and the temple staff, they'd take a cut of the offering and send the rest of it back home with the worshiper who had brought it. And what that meant, in many cases... You could then resell your food to the marketplace and so on. So if you were a Christian in Corinth and you go to the market to buy something to eat, you don't know the history of the food that you're buying. Did somebody offer it at a temple or not? And the Christians are trying in good conscience to figure out how do we navigate living for Jesus in a society that at best treats him as just one God among many And so Paul starts out by saying, how many gods are real? And his answer is, there's just one. You know, it's a a situation that might seem kind of remote and foreign to us. I mean, because how many of us are worrying about whether the T-bone that you're buying at Strax was offered at a temple to Zeus? You know, you say, well, that was a situation back then and there, but that doesn't touch us much these days. But as John said, some of us are headed to India uh, in just a week's time. Half a dozen of us who are here, Larry and Mindy and Michelle and Matt Hess and Ryan Griffin as well as myself and a few others from LifeLink Chicago, we're all going to represent us. And there's a lot of food in India that's been presented as offerings in in the many temples and shrines. We're going to be seeing, walking down the streets. We're going to be landing during a Hindu festival. And, And these are very real issues around the world even if you don't feel like they're so relevant in Munster and Highland and in the region here. But as what we see right away from how Paul starts to address the situation is there's timeless principles, even when he's dealing with a, a very specific cultural issue. Because Paul is showing us that the principles that he uses to answer this question actually apply for you and me to a whole lot of situations broader than whether our stake got offered at a pagan temple or not. And so Paul continues here, and we think as we go through verse six, we think we know where he's going 
Because how many gods did he say were real? Just one. And as, as Paul gets going, he's making it clear that an idol is nothing at all in the world. Did you catch that verse? It says, we know. Our knowledge tells us the idols are fakes. What's behind the idol is not a real God, maybe a demon or so-called gods and spirits, but they're not on the level as the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And so he says, they're nothing at all in the world. And instead, he's saying, there's only one real God. He says, he's the Father. I, I love it that Paul doesn't just tell us that there's only one God. He's using the opportunity to remind us who this God is. Because he's the Father who made everything and for whom everything exists. And by identifying him as the Father, he's reminding us of his one and only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And Paul doesn't stop by saying that the one God who's real is the Father. He says, and there's just one Lord. There's one ruler to everything the Father's made, and it's his Son, Jesus Christ. That's why we're singing so much to and about Jesus here at Mercy Hill. That's why we're singing hallelujah for the cross. Paul's telling us, when it comes down to it, Jesus is everything for us. And he is. He says there's only one God, the Father, from whom everything came and for whom everything exists. And there's only one Lord, Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He's the one through whom all things came and through whom we live. See, Jesus is our life. There's no one else like him. Jesus was sent by his father. He came from heaven down to earth. He lived a perfect life here and he offered his own life as a sacrifice. So when it comes to offering a bit of food, whether it's meat or grain or fruit or vegetables, it's nothing compared to the one and only perfect offering that Jesus himself made to the one and only God and judge the Father in heaven, when he offered his own blood to take our place and wash away all of our sin so that as Brooke said to us this morning, we can approach him in freedom and confidence today. Hallelujah for the cross. This is good news. This is great joy that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is enough to make us presentable to the one real God and judge, the Father himself. Jesus, Paul says, is everything for us. He's not just saying that out there there's only one real God and only one real Lord. He's saying, but for us, in our own experience, when we have come to Jesus, it nullifies the role of every other so-called God in our lives and for us in a way that while it's true theologically and it's a spiritual reality out there that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But for you and I who have already come to Jesus, there's only one ruler and Lord in our lives. And the other gods that might have once held control or power or sway so that we had to live in slavery to fear, they're done away with. Because for us, the Lord Jesus Christ is in control. Hallelujah. Isn't that good news? Now, so back to the question, what do we do about, can we eat food that's been sacrificed to idols or not? Well, after a manifesto like Paul has just brought, 
you know what? I, I think I know where Paul's going. If an idol is nothing at all in the world and Jesus is everything, well, then I expect Paul to have a pretty clean, crisp answer to this question, which is nothing happens biochemically in the meat when somebody presents it to a statue. Are are you seeing the point? And so I expect Paul to now say, guys, stop worrying about this issue. Guys, why are you spending time and energy wondering whether it's okay or not okay to do that? Jesus is everything. The idols are nothing. Go ahead and eat whatever you want. But he doesn't actually say that. That's what I might predict he would conclude. But Paul actually goes in a different direction. So let's follow him as he throws the Corinthians and us a bit of a curveball. Here's what he says in the next verse, verse seven. He's just said, an idol is nothing. There's only one God. There's only one Lord. But verse seven, he continues, he says, but not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food, verse eight, but food does not bring us near to God. And we are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. He's saying the conscience of the person who's weak isn't changing the spiritual reality, but he's introducing this new ingredient in the conversation that it's not as simple as what is or isn't the case in the heavenly realms or here. He's saying it matters what somebody thinks when it comes to me choosing what I'm going to do. And so verse nine, he goes on. He says, so be careful, however, Once he reaffirms that food isn't really the issue. It doesn't bring us near to God, doesn't make us better, doesn't make us worse. Verse nine is his command. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what's been sacrificed to idols. And so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. So for Paul, the theological issue is very cut and dried. It's very clear for Paul that an idol is nothing. Jesus is everything, but he goes farther. He says, there is something more important than my individual freedom. There is something more important than me going ahead and doing anything I'm allowed to do. It's this, I gotta care about the people around me. And that matters more than me getting to do whatever I want. You know, because Christ is everything, instead of it meaning that I can do whatever I want, no, because Christ is everything, I'm free to care about how my life affects other people. Because Christ is everything, everything else 
can find a lesser place properly. Because Christ is all, my personal freedom matters less. It's less important than what's going to help my brothers and sisters. An idol is nothing at all in the world, Paul says. An idol is nothing at all in the world, but my brother's conscience is something. Do you see that? He said, spiritually speaking, the idol is nothing, but spiritually speaking, my brother's conscience is something, and it's got to weigh in to my decision-making. Caring about others is more important than getting to exercise my own personal freedoms and liberties. In my case, in this case, what do I get to eat? What do I get to do? What I want to do and what I'm allowed to do is less important than what's going to build up people around me. My freedom is less important than the priority of caring for others so that my example doesn't lead anyone else into sin. Therefore, Paul concludes, if what I do, well, you know what? I'd rather never again do something I enjoy if doing it would cause somebody else to sin. You know, our knowledge, this, now this is why verses one and two make sense. Because when Paul started this in verses one and two, he says, now about food sacrifice to idols, he goes off and thing about knowledge and puffing up and love and piercing who thinks he knows something, doesn't know it. It makes sense now. Because our knowledge may say, go ahead. There's no problem with it. It's just, it's just between me and Jesus, this is cool. I'll just do it. But Paul's saying, no, no, no. Love is more important than exercising my personal freedom. Love says something different. Love says, deny myself to help and serve others. And brothers and sisters, this is radically countercultural. It's radically countercultural to live life not based on my own freedoms and what I'm allowed to do myself, but to live my life based on what's going to be helpful for the people around me in terms of them coming closer to the Lord and being able to follow Jesus. The question for us is, what's it supposed to look like to have Jesus at the center of my life? Because when I say, Jesus, you're my Lord, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to live for you, I'm saying, Jesus, be the center of my life, my choices, my decisions, even my recreation. And Paul's teaching us something radical here. Because according to Paul, evidently, Jesus is only actually at the center of how I'm living if I'm making my decisions actively considering how my so-called freedom is going to affect other people around me. If I'm not living and not thinking about how my actions are going to affect other people's walk with the Lord, that I'm living a self-centered life, not a Christ-centered life. That's countercultural, and, and it gets really close to touching a real danger zone in each of our lives. Because the one thing that we want to protect more than anything else is our sense of my right to do what I want to do. And when my individuality gets threatened, I react against it. I start to come up with all kinds of rationalizations and defensive reactions to protect what's most precious to me, which is what I want. But Paul is saying something radical. 
He's saying the person who's living with Jesus really genuinely at the center, not just saying, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I'll serve you. Jesus, I'll follow you. He's saying the way that we tell if we're living with Jesus really at the center is that it matters to me how what I do affects you and how it affects the people around us. You can see how much this is Paul's perspective because when he talks about that weak brother who because of that guy's conscience, I may not get to eat meat anymore, he doesn't put the guy down for being weak. He lifts him up and says, that person is someone that Christ has died for. There's such value and dignity. Paul's not condescending about it at all. He's saying it's more important that I see that the people around me, these are people that Christ died for. How could I possibly make a choice that would harm their walk with Jesus? I'd be sinning against them. If I did that, I'd be sinning against Jesus. I don't want to do that because Christ is at the center of my life. You know, that's, it's kind of a call to get out of me and into we. To move beyond even just saying it's me and Jesus. Say, no, it's us and Jesus and how we think about how we live our lives. Now, Paul is really driving that explicitly in chapter eight, but watch this space because he's gonna go on and develop it more in chapter nine. And do you know what's gonna happen in chapter 10? You're gonna see it again. And we're gonna get to chapter 11, and do you know what you're gonna see? You're gonna see the same principle again about how we worship together. We're gonna move into chapter 12, and chapter 13 and chapter 14, and Paul is doing the same thing. He's saying it's not about you and I as individuals getting to do whatever we want or even being the one who gets to make the contribution in the meeting and exercise my gifts that came from the Holy Spirit that he gave to me. Ran out of breath. That he gave to me. He's saying it's about building one another up together. How many of you know that section of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that probably got read at your wedding? or it was read at the most recent wedding that you got to. Did you guys read that one? 1 Corinthians 13, right? Even if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, love is patient, love is kind. Love, do you guys know that verse, those verses, right? Listen, you can't understand what Paul's talking about in chapter 13 if you're not letting it sink in here in chapter eight. Because the context for him saying that, it's not just the church meeting. It's not just our exercise of spiritual gifts together. It is a paradigm. It is a worldview. It's a way for you and I to live that's contrary to the culture of individualism, that's contrary to the culture of self. It's heaven's culture, brothers and sisters, that says, because Jesus is everything, your progress in your relationship with the Lord matters to the decisions that I make. Are you getting that? Good. You know, with that in mind, I find I can't help but wonder a bit about what Paul would think about the emphasis being given in some churches here in Indiana these days about protecting our religious freedom. You probably have seen it because there's plenty of controversy right now in our culture. And some churches have swung to an extreme of making it seem like protecting our individual freedoms is the most important thing. Now look, I love freedom. I especially love my freedom. And, and there's genuine value in religious freedom and protecting it. it. There's genuine value there. Protecting religious freedom is a good thing. But it's not the only thing. 
And according to Paul's emphasis in this pastor, passage, I have to wonder whether Paul would think it's actually the most important thing. Because Paul seems to be saying there's something more important than our freedom and it's love. That's why we get to chapter 13. He said, sorry, end of chapter, beginning of chapter 14. Now, let me show you the most excellent way. Brothers and sisters, there is a more excellent way to live than just trying to defend and exercise our individual freedoms. And it's love. Please, don't let your freedom become your idol. Love matters more than our freedom. And our example is so valuable. The way we live can help people to Jesus or or hurt people's walk with Jesus. That's why Paul says in verse 13, therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Our example is important. You know, and Paul is saying here, it's not follow me as I flaunt my freedoms. It's follow me as I follow Christ. Press rewind and come back with me to verse eight. Remember in verse eight, Paul's sort of recalibrating, but he says, food doesn't bring us closer to God. Yeah, and that emphasizes to us that the real spiritual principle he's talking about isn't about the meat. He says, food doesn't bring us close to God. But then he, he describes it backwards to the way that the church was arguing about it. Because he says, food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. That's interesting because the, the argument in the church was, if you eat it, you would be defiled. The folks who say you can't eat it, say don't touch it. He says, you know, we're no worse if we don't eat it. Wait a minute. There's people in church saying, what you really need to do is not eat it because that's going to be better. And Paul turns it upside down. He says, you know what? You're no worse if you abstain. If you, through your conscience, you say, I can't do this, you're no worse. He says, and those of you who eat, you're actually no better. And what that upside down treatment is showing us is this. He says, there is no spiritual value in flaunting our freedom. Hello? Because sometimes Christians can act like they've got a little something to prove by being non-religious or even a little edgy about how they live whether it's in drinking or in going to movies or body ink or wardrobe or other things. We have a way of reacting and we try to show how free we are. And Paul's saying, you know what? There's, you're not any more spiritual flaunting your freedom than you are being conservative. Are you hearing that? Yeah, and it's a vital piece for us to get here. The way Jesus lived was he laid himself down for others. Jesus laid himself down for others. And he did that in a way that wasn't just capitulating to everybody else's religious restrictions. And we're called to follow Christ in this. It doesn't mean that we end up never being controversial about positions that we take or things that we do. But one aspect of following Christ for us means that I'm more concerned about the well-being of those who'd follow my example than I am about just getting to do what I want. And in particular, the ones we're concerned about are not actually the people who are stubbornly opposed to us about something. We're actually worrying about the ones who might follow us and imitate us, not the ones who might criticize us and oppose us. Do you see the distinction? It's it's not a call to avoid any controversy. 
It's a, it's a call to be a Christ word example in the things that we do because someone is going to follow us. And are we actually helping them come closer to Jesus or not? And especially Paul's concerned for the person who might follow my example, but whose conscience is telling them that they're still doing something wrong as they do. Does it make sense to you to think about somebody going ahead and doing something, even though they think in their head that it's actually a wrong thing to do? I mean, you see it on the expressway all the time. Uh, Those of us who commute up into Chicago, right? What's the speed limit on the tri-state as it comes around here and goes around the corner up there? Right? And how fast is everybody going? (laughs) Right? Now, they're not ignorant about the speed limit. Right? And, And nobody thinks that being a Christian changes whether the speed, what the speed limit is. Hello? Jesus did not die to change the speed limit, right? Uh, what's in question is not whether it's right or wrong to drive at 70 instead of 55, but everybody's doing it. Uh, in fact, you, we start to rationalize ourselves. You know what? If I'm not keeping up with the rest of the traffic, I'm a hazard out here. You know, somebody's going to get hurt if, if I don't go a little faster here, you know? My point is this, thinking to ourselves, I know this is wrong, is not, does not prevent us from doing something that we think is wrong. It's not an automatic preventative from doing something you think is wrong. You know, guys don't look at pornography because they think it's okay. Thinking that something's wrong doesn't mean you're not going to still go ahead and do it. Listen, even if everybody else is looking at pornography, it's still wrong. The, these examples, speed limit, pornography, those are dealing areas where we've got some moral absolutes to hang on to. You, you can be clear, wrong and wrong. And yet, Paul's writing here, you know, to talk about matters of interpretation where it's not so clear what's right, what's wrong. In fact, Paul seems to say there's no problem with the issue but we've got to care about how what we do is affecting the people around us because according to Paul, it can still be wrong for me to do a thing that in and of itself is okay if my doing it causes someone else to sin. Um, You know, if you're an adult, it's not illegal for you to go to an R-rated movie, right? 17 and older, you can go. You You have the legal right to do whatever you want. And there may be certain movies that are perfectly okay for you to go see, even if they've earned an R rating, depending on your own mental makeup. But Paul's saying here, there's another question for us to be asking besides, do I want to see this movie or not? Or am I allowed to do this? Or do I have the right to do something? Instead, I also need to think about who might follow my example. Because someone else might say, oh, well, John enjoys going and you know, watching such and such a movie. It had an R rating on it, so it must be okay for me to go watch movies like that too. And if that guy goes and watches a movie and now he's got a head full of sex and violence and it's leading him into trouble, Paul says that my freedom, the way I've just exercised it, has become a stumbling block for him. And now that is a matter between me and Jesus because Paul says, 
I've sinned against him, against my brother, and I've sinned against Christ. So I've got to push the pause button in my decision-making. Say, okay, I want to do this. It's not black and white. There's no law against me going ahead, but how's it going to affect the people around us? You know, now, you might say, wait a minute. I'm not going to be able to do anything if I'm always asking, is there somebody who's going to be offended about it? Because you can find somebody who's going to be offended at anything these days, right? Listen, and that's why I mentioned before, the concern Paul is talking about is not for those who disagree with us because of their convictions. It's not about avoiding arguments about what the gospel really says and means. It's not about everything getting reduced to the most narrow religiously fundamentalist restrictions about what we can and can't do for the most easily offended people. Now, if we look at how Jesus lived when he was here on earth, we find he was regularly getting into conflict with people about their religious interpretations. Jesus himself was breaking the mold and upsetting the traditions of the Pharisees. Jesus, however, was doing so to reach people that God cares about. You know, and so when he was getting criticized by the religious for his own di- dining choices, it was because he was reaching people that he was going to die for. And so we're drilling down into our motives. It's not always easy to measure at the decision level, but God knows our hearts. And God knows whether I'm rationalizing my self-centeredness or whether I'm genuinely submitting something to him in good conscience. And there's some issues that are core to the gospel that Paul would rather get in an argument about than please other people about. You find that when he's dealing with central issues to the gospel about racial integration, Paul is unwilling to give an inch on this subject because for Paul, the gospel means that Jews and Gentiles, and even for us as black and white, no matter what country we're born in, no matter where we were raised, what language we speak, we are equal heirs together with Jesus and members together in his family. And Paul went toe-to-toe with the apostle Peter in Antioch about that issue when Peter was tempted into hypocrisy by some religious extremists from Jerusalem. And so we don't just give up all ground and all territory to the person who is most conservative or restrictive in their thinking. But our concern is for those who aren't digging their trenches on issues, but for folks who might actually imitate us and do the things that we're going to do. Our concern is that we not do something that leads others into sin as a result. And in this case, Paul is so strong. But you know, as challenging as it it might seem to be, how do I figure that out? Most of us who are parents are kind of used to doing this with our kids anyway. Now, we may do it to a greater or lesser extent, but we've already accepted in principle that having small children affects the kinds of things we get to do as mom and dad. How many have found that true? Right? Uh, And if we didn't accept it at first, we've kind of learned that there are consequences if we don't start to consider those things. Because there's only so many stores that you can take your two-year-old to in a row before they are done. And it's not going to go well, even if you had three more things on your list to accomplish at the mall before you go home. And we find, you know what? That those who are weaker, we, we resent less, let me put it that way, uh, the demand that that puts on us because we love them, because we care about them. 
you know, we learn with our kids that we just can't stay out that late at night like we used to before they were born because once they melt down, it's not fun anymore for anybody. And the, you know, I know many people who've cleaned up their language not because they did a Bible study on it, but because they didn't want their kid repeating that ever again. And, and the fact is, we draw a circle around our lives about whose conscience, who else is good, do I care enough about to adjust my behavior for their sake? We all draw that circle. And Paul is saying, we haven't drawn that circle broad enough because we draw it around our individual families. We get married, and if we want the marriage to continue, we widen our circle to include our spouse. When we have kids, if we want it to go well, we broaden our circle to include our kids. Paul is saying, we've got to draw that circle broader. And he's saying it to a church that's very mixed racially, linguistically, in their religious history because it's got, there are Jews as well as converted pagans who've become Christians together in Corinth. There are ones who speak Hebrew as natives, others who speak only Greek. It's a mixed environment. And he's speaking into them across the different socioeconomic levels that they have and saying, you're brothers and sisters together. Now live like you actually care about each other. Now here's some ways that our our brothers and sisters around the world prioritize helping their brothers and sisters over exercising their own freedoms. Uh, Several of of you were on mission teams to Bolivia earlier this year, whether in January or at the end of June. And, And you know how the church in Santa Cruz de la Sierra has had to grapple with the issue of how do we respond to the carnival festival that's in town. Because many, many of the uh, believers there have to make some hard decisions about participating or not participating. On a theological level, Ryan, you could, you could teach the teaching on it. Uh, you could make a theological case that just as an idol is nothing at all in the world, similarly a Christian should be able to go to the carnival festival without getting drunk, without indulging in sexual immorality, and that it's at least theoretically possible to go. Someone might even make an argument to say this is an important way to connect with some other members of our neighborhood or in the community. But the church leaders that we're working with in Santa Cruz have assessed. They've looked at the people in their congregation. They said, you know what? We've got a church full of brand new believers who all have a history of getting involved in things during carnival that we've got no business getting involved in. And so First of all, they chose themselves to say, we're not going. Maybe me and my wife, we can handle this fine, but we're not going. We love a good party, but it's not a good place for us to be seen. And instead, they've actually organized the church to go on a week-long retreat out of town to provide a positive alternative to the carnival. It's a way of caring for their brothers and sisters. Uh, Many of you remember our, our friend Peter Kaunda from Zambia. He was here at Mercy Hill to speak in March for the youth, the youth night that was here. And Peter pastors a church in Lusaka where it's in a neighborhood where there's just so much alcohol abuse that there's no examples of alcohol not being abused. And, and for Peter, Peter could tell you the alcohol does not forbid the Christian. Sorry, alcohol does not forbid. Let me say this right. The Bible does not forbid the Christian from having some beer or some wine if the Christian doesn't get drunk doing so. The prohibition is against drunkenness. 
not against ever having some alcohol. However, Peter would also say, the people I care about are so weak in their ability to deal with alcohol that there's no way you're ever going to find me having a drink because I can't afford to risk being an example that would cause one of my brothers and sisters to do something that they can't handle themselves. And so he doesn't think there's something intrinsically wrong with having a drink, but he thinks there'd be something very wrong with him becoming an example of drinking to someone who would get in trouble by doing it. Uh, His love for the people in his church does what? It restrains his exercise of freedom. Um, we're headed to India in a week. We know a pastor in India who, who chooses never to eat meat. Now, that's not because he thinks that as a Christian, he's forbidden to eat meat. It's because he's living and working in a dominantly Hindu culture where most of the population cannot imagine that somebody who is in some sense a man of God or a holy person could be so defiled as to eat the bodies of dead animals. And so even when he travels here to the U.S., he refrains from eating meat because he wants to be consistent in what he's modeling to the culture that he's in. You know, and so those are issues that are outside of our own culture, but they show the same principle. They're showing that it's worth it to restrain my freedom if it's going to help the people around me come closer to Jesus, right? Um, I think some of those issues aren't ones that we confront right here in the region in the same way. But consumption is about more than what we eat. There's lots of ways that we are, what do we call them? Consumers. And we consume a lot that isn't just food and drink. And for us, one of the cultural issues that can become a stumbling block to one another is our own conspicuous consumption. I've got the right to buy whatever I want with my own money, don't I? You know, it's my business and nobody else's how I spend my money. Well, Paul might argue differently because he said, because the visible results of our spending have an example effect on the people around us. They have an effect and an influence on the people around us. You know, as Christians, we have all been called into community into fellowship, into community, into a brother-sister relationship with people who have less than we do. We are brothers and sisters to people who are less well-off financially. Even if you feel like you're on the lower end of the, of the spectrum here in the church, there's still folks who have less than each of us. You know, I mentioned our, our friend from Zambia, Peter Kaunda, earlier, who chooses not to drink because he doesn't want it to cause trouble for the people in his church. Part of Peter's rationale is Peter would say, even if there were no moral risk involved for the people in his church in drinking alcohol, he says this, how could I teach the people in my church that it's okay for them to spend the little money they have on a luxury like drinking a beer when their children need food, when their children need clothing, when their children need to be able to pay their school fees and get an education. Peter realizes that a lot of our indulgences are luxuries, and he contrasts it to the priority of the things that are real needs. And for many of us, it comes down to kind of these three Ds, how we dress, how we decorate, and how we drive. The things that 
we do and get when we're trying hard to fit in with a certain crowd or have a certain look or certain status group in the areas of the cars we drive, the clothes we wear, the way we decorate our houses, and some things that we start doing create trouble for people around us because our culture defines being able to afford something in a way that's different than the way the Bible defines being able to afford it. What our culture says is, I can afford this if I can handle the monthly financing expenses on the debt for having it. But the Bible says that debt is slavery and that real freedom is only found when we get out of debt, not when we continue to get deeper into debt, even if I think I can handle it month by month. And so you may very well find, we may very well feel like, oh, well, well, we can pay for this. We've saved for it. But watch out if that provokes someone else to put it on their credit card to keep up with you. The, if we're not asking about the effect that the way that we're dressing, decorating, and driving affects others that Christ has died for, we're not living with Jesus at the center. And the, you know, my goal is, is like completely the opposite of trying to set up a religious checklist of what kind of handbag you're allowed to have or which kind of car you can drive or whether it's okay to buy a new car or a used car or any of that. What I'm challenging us to do is to apply the word of God to the decision-making process that we do when it comes to our personal preference. To take a step away from saying, I can do whatever I want and actually prayerfully consider other people in the decisions that we make and make sure that what we do is helping and not harming others. If I'm making decisions about my wardrobe or the watch I have or you know, the way I accessorize, hoping to impress you, it's a sign that there's a problem underneath in my motive and my hope. It means Jesus isn't in the center for me. It means I'm more concerned about trying to make sure you like me or approve of me or think that I'm something one way or another. You know, it can go the other direction as well. It's, it doesn't have to be always the more expensive stuff. It's amazing how much money people can spend to look frugal as well. Uh, you know, and the cost of, of jeans, designer jeans that are already ripped. Uh, anyway, another category. Yeah. But spiritually speaking, here's what, something we have to watch out for. You and I, we're master rationalizers. Uh, I have the capacity to come up with reasons to explain why the things I want really are things I should have and do. One of the excuses, one of the major levers I use in my own rationalizing is the, it's good for my kids. It's good for our family. You know, oh, it'd be so good for us to take this vacation together and build these memories and do things. You know, some of us have grown up, you know, there's, there's been a cultural history in this area. Some folks, they always have a lake house or a vacation cottage somewhere. And during the summer, boom, we just go there, you know, throughout the weekend. But you know what? We've got to push the pause button and ask whether the things that we rationalize to ourselves are really a helpful exercise of our freedom. Is there anything illegal about that or necessarily bad? No, not necessarily. But it may come as a cost to my relationships with others in the church. It may come at a cost to, re- to people who are outside of my nuclear family. Draw the circle wider. Draw the circle bigger. And look for ways where, hey, if we are going to do that, who do we take along? How do we share and spread the blessing so it's not something that's just ours, but it helps and builds up the rest of the family of Christ?
I'd like to just bring us to a close. Coming back to say hallelujah, thank you for the cross. Because we are sharing communion this morning. Yes. Because communion is both a declaration and demonstration that there's only one God and only one Lord and that all idols are what? Nothing. But it's equally a demonstration that we together are one family, that we are one loaf. And the gospel brings us to Jesus, but it takes our individualism to the cross and leaves it there. Our resurrection life does not exalt our individualism or our personal freedom. It says, no, my resurrection life is all from Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. And we do it together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. But Lord, thank you for dying for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing me into the Father's family together with all my brothers and sisters. And Lord, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you'd search my heart and the hearts of all my brothers and sisters, Lord, to expose just wherever I'm being selfish, wherever each of us is being selfish in our decisions and don't want to consider others. Lord, show us ways that we can help even our weak brothers and sisters for whom you died come close to you in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.